is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Air raid sirens going off in western Ukraine as Russia expands its military offensive, hitting airports in the west, targeting an industrial city now in the east. This comes as Vladimir Putin mentioned what he calls positive developments in negotiations. We'll go in depth into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We'll hear from a Ukrainian refugee who has left the country. We'll learn about his journey out of Ukraine and what is next for him and his family. And President Biden making a move to revoke Russia's most favored nation trade status. That's uh, also a ban now on Russian seafood and vodka. Will this really hurt Russia's economy. Looming in the shadows of the war is China. Country seems to be sympathetic toward Russia. It's even accused of helping spread misinformation against the U.S. We'll explore what China's looking to get from all of this. And then two years ago today, the World Health Organization declared a pandemic because of COVID-19. Since then, it's killed more than six million people around the world. Almost a million here in this country. We'll go in depth on how we got here and uh, where we go next. We start in Ukraine, where we talk again with journalist Phil Littner, who is in Lviv. Phil, thanks for being with us again. So it, it looks as if uh, after a, a long period of, of uh, what seemed to be a, a stalled situation around the capital, Kiev, uh, there are all these reports that the Russians seem to be really picking up their pace. Well, yeah, guys, it, it looks like what the Russians are doing around the capital is dispersing into uh, areas where they have more uh, cover from the sky. So into forests, into uh, kind of uh, areas where they can get uh, under some sort of cover, if that's a, like a roadway that uh, has a crossover or something like that. Clearly, the Russians have uh, changed their tactics because they've been just getting pounded by uh, Ukrainian artillery used in conjunction with uh, drone strikes, uh, that they have uh, received a a number of drones, uh, particularly from Turkey. Um, And so they are uh, spreading out uh, further into various areas around the capital. Now, whether or not that's strictly because they are having these problems with uh, getting hits from the air uh, or from artillery being targeted from the air, or whether or not they're moving into staging areas is yet to be seen. Of course, the Russians don't necessarily telegraph why they're doing what they're doing. There's also been strikes further into the West, right, in some of these areas that have been a little bit quieter, at least. Um, What do we think that is? Is this actual strategic target stuff, or is this just the Russians uh, doing that terror campaign, just bombing to remind people that, you know what, we can do this? Well, I mean, that might very well be part of it. I can tell you where I am in Lviv, which is a city that has been inhabited for a thousand years and has a great historical value and cultural value to Europe. Uh, Last night, uh, we had at least three air raid sirens, and so we had to take refuge here in Lviv, which is relatively unusual. When I first arrived here about a week and a half ago, uh, maybe two weeks now, uh, we were getting air raid sirens, but then for a great period of time, a long period of time, nothing until last night when we had those three in quick succession. Uh, now, in addition to that, the Russians did actually strike an airport, an airfield uh, north of me about, I would say, maybe um, 60, 70 miles north of me in a town called Lutsk. Uh, There is an airfield there that they struck the actual uh, airfield, killing some Ukrainian service members. 
Uh, it is believed that potentially that is because it was going to be used as some sort of air um, air campaign from that landing field, whether that's drones or some other asset. But you know, for the uh, Russians to use uh, a kind of medium-range missile, which is apparently what actually hit the airfield, uh, there was clearly an indication on their part from the Russians that that airfield was going to be used to combat their air power and their air superiority. Uh, Mike and Charles, you have to understand one thing that's very important in this campaign, and that is dominance in the sky, something that everybody thought the Russians would just achieve normally and something that the Ukrainians say they need an awful lot more assistance in controlling. But regardless, we are now 16-plus days into this campaign, and Russia does not have dominance of the air. Journalist uh, Phil Itner, who is there in Lviv. Phil, thanks for joining us again. Uh, in the past few days, weeks now, uh, we have been talking on this show every day uh, with different people in Ukraine. But, you know, more than two million people have left Ukraine to safety. Nazar is one of them. Uh, Nazar, thank you for joining us. You left with your family. Tell us a very little a bit about your family, but then more about your three-day journey out of Ukraine. Yes. Currently, I'm uh, at, <laughs> at Greece. Uh, we traveled here last day uh, through Bulgaria, so we made a, <laughs> another big journey here. Okay, so you went. You, so you went from Ukraine through Poland. Is that it? And now you're no, in not through Poland. Uh, it, it was probably it is a mistake through Moldova. Oh, yeah. okay. So all right. So you're in Greece now. So tell yes. us about about that journey. Uh, this whole journey from Ukraine. Uh, to hear was devastating. Uh, it was very hard to live through it, as it is very stressful, very hard emotionally and physically. Uh, but on the journey here uh, to the Greece, I saw a lot of open hearts, a lot of openness from people and support from different countries. People are accepting our my family uh, to live in their houses uh, for no payment. Uh, in Greece, they uh, made their paid roads for free. Basically, there's a lot of support for Ukrainians, and I really appreciate appreciate that. T- tell us about your family. How how many people do you have with you? <laughs> I have a big family. Uh, I have uh, two brothers, one sister, uh, parents, and a dog. <laughs> and we are traveling on a <laughs> minivan. <laughs> and why why did you end up in Greece? Uh, mm, my father is uh, looking forward to traveling to Cyprus, as he sees there are some opportunities for future job. Uh, yeah. So in three days, we will try to go to Cyprus. Okay. So you're going to keep moving on your way out of Ukraine. Where were you? What city? Give us an idea of what things were like before you made the decision that, that you had to go. Uh, we made this decision at the last moment, like when everything began, a lot of families started to, uh, leave Ukraine weeks before the conflict uh, started to emerge. Uh, 
it was first day of the war and my parents woke up because of the explosions that they heard uh, nearby. And this is, it was very frightening and it was very scary. There were a lot of panic in our family and we packed everything like in a rush and uh, left Ukraine. And it took us three days uh, to to go through board borders. Nazar, how old are you now? I'm uh, 15. You're 15? Wow, okay. Uh, do you think, because uh, as you know, many people uh, stayed in Ukraine, and millions certainly, like yourself and your family, left. Um, how do you feel about the the people who remained as opposed to the people who left? Uh, I have a lot of friends uh, that are still in Ukraine and some of them are in Kiev uh, and I feel very nervous about them, uh, about their safety. Uh, a lot of people who stayed in Ukraine are uh, currently in, uh, uh, in in more safe part of Ukraine, like in Cherkasy. Uh, it's near the border of, of Moldova. So it is more safe there. So a lot of people just left their city. They're still in Ukraine. Uh, and they're relatively safe now. But I'm still very nervous. And yeah. Are you able <laughs> to, to keep up with them pretty well and, and, and communicate? I mean, obviously, you're, you're nervous every day. But how often are you able to figure out what kind of a situation that they're in? Mm. I try to text them almost every time I have an opportunity, uh, like twice a day or something like that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> were you? I, I presume you were a student in Ukraine, yes? Yes. What were you studying? Uh, what? what? Where I was studying? No, what were you studying in particular? No, I'm not a, like I'm in a school. Okay. Uh, in in high school. High school. Uh, yes, and I had like political political studies, uh, history, uh, philosophics, uh, literature, like a lot of uh, I, I, a lot of subjects, basically. Yeah, normal stuff until yeah. your whole life yeah, got turned stuff. upside down in in a week's time. And th- and, right, and, and I was going to say, so three weeks ago, for example, four weeks ago, you obviously never thought of being, I, I would suppose, in a position like this. Do you think you're ever going to go back or be able to go back to Ukraine? Or do you think this is the beginning? You're 15, you said. Is this the beginning of a whole new life for you? Uh, I I want to come back to Ukraine. I... Uh, a lot of teens in Ukraine, maybe uh, one month ago, uh, it was a popular opinion that Ukraine is a like third world, a third world country, and uh, it was popular to uh, go to other countries and leave, uh, live there. But now, after I experienced that, I understood how I am connected to this place, how I connected to this culture and to these people. And I do really want to come back and do something for this country. Seeing and knowing how many people are back home fighting and staying or just trying to do their part, how does that make you feel kind of looking in from the outside and, and that 
that pride for all those people who feel so strongly about where they're from too. Uh, it, it is pretty sad that I uh, cannot do a lot of for a lot of things about this whole situation. At least I'm trying to do something informationally. Uh, for example, just by talking to you and to people from the world. And this is at least that I can do. And it is pretty sad that I cannot do more for my country. How is the, you mentioned you're there with uh, your family, right? So uh, how is everybody in the family taking, you said you're there with your dog too. How's the dog doing? <laughs> uh, this is like, this whole situation is crazy. This is just surreal. Uh, it is very hard as we have one infant uh, and two kids. I'm the oldest one, so it is very difficult uh, to be for such long time, periods of time in a van or in a small apartment. Apartments. This is a that is a very strange experience, and it was very difficult. Did you even know really where you were going, and or is it just you know what? And you were telling us a little bit when we started we're crossing the border and then you kind of what did you just really happen upon people who were willing to just open their doors and, and that's something else we've seen in some of these other areas as well some yes, people are coming with no plan like, and it's like i'll take you in C come with me yes yeah, so this is like the the strangest thing and i really love like i'm very surprised that people uh in different countries are so open uh and so supportive. Uh, we didn't have any plan. First, we planned to stay in Moldova uh, uh, because there are a lot of friends and relatives there. Uh, but then we decided to move. But basically, it was not planned. And people are just willing to help in all, like in different places. We had at least, we found at least three people three no not three people oh three families that are willing to help us in cyprus and i'm very happy to see that support Nizal, what do you i'm very glad that yeah what, what i'm very you, glad that what do you think about about uh russia russians uh you're talking about people or what <laughs> it's uh, could it be more precise? Sure. Uh, you've got, uh, the, you know, you've got a government uh, right on the border with yours uh, that's intent clearly on taking over your country. I don't know if you have relatives, maybe even friends in Russia. Uh, so I'm curious what your thoughts are now about the Russian government, the Russian people. Uh, uh, for I, I was start talking about government. I think that. Uh, my opinion about Russian government was didn't change. Uh, in the, in the past, I understood that uh, it it was and it is very corrupt. It is authoritarian, and is it is basically like very radical and very military. Uh, it, it this government depends on military forces. And it is very authoritarian. And I knew that uh, in the past. Uh, so my 
opinion didn't change a lot. Uh, I just didn't thought that they would actually invade us. Um, so that was quite surprising. I thought that it was a very rational thing to do, but they did it. And yeah, I just, I, I guess I just uh, uh, got a proof for, for my words and for my thoughts. Uh, talking about people, uh, I'm very glad that some people are uh, still willing to protest. Um, knowing like even knowing that uh they're probably are not going to be heard and they're probably going to be arrested uh, and this is i'm very glad to see that uh and it is very sad to see that some russians are some russians are very supportive of actions of putin uh, and it is very see, and it is and it is very sad to see that a lot of them are just brainwashed by Russia media. Yes, this Nazar there, just fifteen years old, uh, with his family in Greece now. Nazar, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, three days for them to get out of the country. Mom, dad, a couple other kids. He's the oldest one. They've got an infant with them. Don't forget got the dog the and the dog too. And the dog, uh, Nazar. Thanks for the time. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The U.S. hitting Russia again economically. The president says we'll now work to revoke Russia's most favored nation trade status. The U.S. will also ban imports on Russian seafood, alcohol, and even diamonds. How much of an impact will this all have? Jeffrey uh, Schott is a uh, senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He works on international trade policy and economic sanctions. Jeffrey, thanks for being with us. Let's start with with, uh, most favored nation status. Can you explain to folks listening, if they don't know what it is, what exactly is it? It's basically a commitment to treat uh, one country as well as you treat everyone else. Uh, So it's it's basically normal trade status, and uh, it's it's what you treat your best customer. Okay. I was just going to say we're not cutting them any deals anymore, uh, which makes sense given everything else we're doing. Are we the only ones revoking that status, though, or is everybody else going to join up, too? Because he, the president, did say our allies this morning. Yes, and indeed, our European allies are going to follow suit very shortly. Uh, they have a much better, uh, bigger stake in trading with Russia. Uh, we don't have uh, much trade with Russia. And after the measures taken today and earlier in this week, we're basically not going to do business with Russia almost at all. Uh, so the tariffs are, are irrelevant, essentially, if you're not allowed to even import the goods. Uh, and, and that's what we're happening. We're not going to send money to Russia. And in fact, we've taken their, their money and frozen it and probably will seize it for reparations. Okay, so what does this all do? The, the sanctions, the uh, eventually revoking uh, most favored nation status, not, not uh, accepting, uh, you know, imports of uh, what, I guess, diamonds, caviar and yeah, stuff like no that. No caviar and no vodka. Caviar, right. Although we did the vodka, it's, it's like, what, 1% or something is yeah. actual Russian vodka. Right, here. most of it isn't. So, so what effect is it going to have and how soon will it have it, do you think, on Russia? Well, I think the big uh, signal it sends is to our allies who are going to follow suit and who have more business with the Russians. Uh, And the big challenge for them will be to cut off 
as much as they can uh, purchases of Russian oil and gas. That's where Russia makes its money, hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And uh, uh, that's uh, what has to stop uh, if we're going to uh, cut off funding that supports the Russian military in Ukraine. And that's, uh, as the story has always been, is going to be a lot easier for, for some of the countries. It's easier for us to do it than them. But even within Europe, it's easier for some countries to do it than some of the others. Exactly. So what does Russia do? Can it do anything to counter all of this or does it just crumble? Well, Russia can uh, and continues to get uh, a substantial amount of money from the current sales of oil and gas. And remember, those prices are inflated, as everybody knows. Uh, so they are making some windfall profits. Uh, that keeps their, their state uh, go uh, government alive uh, for the near term. Uh, but this is going to be corrosive over, over time. But unfortunately, that doesn't help the poor people of Ukraine that are being bombed every day. So we're trying to ramp up the, the pressure to really uh, get people in Russia to say, this isn't worth it. Uh, and to try to get it stopped. But uh, essentially, we're impoverishing the Russian economy and sending them back to the 20th century. Well, yeah, the stock market hasn't been open for, for basically this whole time, right? Yeah. The market's closed. The ruble has, has, has fallen through the floor. Inflation is soaring. Uh, you're not going to be able to buy imported goods in, 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 uh, uh, in Russia uh, very soon, except if they're made in China. Uh, and so uh, it's going to affect across the board people in Russia who are going to have only one person to blame for it. OK, so if Russia were a, a democratic country, then the strategy would be to get uh, all the voters riled up so they would vote somebody out of office since it is not a democratic country. There aren't that many ways of getting Putin out of office. Yes, and, and there's the old-fashioned way, uh, but I think the military uh, leaders are the only ones who are in a position to do that. Jeffrey Schott is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. While the U.S. and West engage Russia in an economic war of sorts, China is still very much out there. The country claims neutrality but has been opposed to the sanctioned, uh, sanctions and is still trading with Russia. There are also accusations it is helping Russia spread misinformation about biological weapons in Ukraine. China has had its own ambitions in Taiwan. It says it's you know part of China. Sounds familiar to Vladimir Putin's rhetoric about Ukraine. Abraham Denmark, senior fellow at the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States, also author of U.S. Strategy in the Asian Century, Empowering Allies and Partners. Abraham, thanks for being here. So let's start with the last point, then we'll circle on back to the others. This was one of the early uh, reads and early things that people were saying about this conflict, this war, Russia and Ukraine, saying don't give Russia too much ground because and China's going to try this with Taiwan. Yeah, there's some clear parallels that one can see on the surface that one uh, you have a smaller democracy up against a much larger authoritarian uh, country with a much larger military. Um, but there's also some important differences uh, in that Taiwan is an island. Um, the kinds of amphibious invasion that would be required to take Taiwan is much more difficult than what uh, Russia has been attempting in in Ukraine. Um, and there's also, I think Ukraine is 
generally seen around the world as a country, as a recognized country, whereas Taiwan is not recognized by most countries around the world, including the United States. So there's some similarities, but also some pretty significant differences. What does China have to offer Russia now? And what does Russia have to offer China? And we'll, for the moment, keep uh, the issue of Taiwan and Ukraine off the table. What does each country have to give the other that makes them, in, in effect now, such buds? Well, in the, um, at, at, the, at the physical level, there is um, Russian oil, uh, which China needs to feed its uh, rapidly rising e uh, economy, and Chinese money, which Russia needs to uh, pay for everything else. Um, and that relationship becomes even more important, especially for Russia, as the rest of the world uh, cuts Russia off from international markets. They become even more dependent on China. Um, but beyond that, at the uh, political and strategic level, they have a shared uh, animosity, a shared dislike of the United States, of the international uh, rules-based order that the United States created after the Second World War. And they'd like to revise that system to be more accommodating to their interests that recognizes uh, their status as major powers, that recognizes spheres of influence uh, that the United States, in their mind, should butt out of. Um, so it's really a, a combination of both the, the physical, the economic, the political, and the strategic that they see as uniting them. If there's more um, you know, oil and energy bans, can China, China make up for what's not being sold elsewhere? And then uh, on the other side of that, is the Chinese money worth enough to the Russians to, to, to bail them out of the economic problems? Well, they can't bail them out entirely. They can't make up for the rest of the world in terms of demand for oil, but they can provide an outlet uh, for Russia. Uh, much as China has done for North Korea over the decades, um, where it's not going to be as good as the rest of the system, but it can uh, greatly diminish the the pain of economic sanctions and put a and reduce the amount of pressure that's on Putin and his and his uh, regime um, coming from a, a dramatic downturn in the economy can kind of m make the pain a bit less intense than it would be otherwise. I want to explore just a little bit uh, more what you were just saying before about the antipathy that, that China and Russia have toward the Western order imposed after World War II. In their view, what do you think they want the world to look like? If you're in, uh, head of the leader of China or if you're Vladimir Putin, you're the leader of Russia, what do you want this planet to, to look like? Well, they do have uh, somewhat different visions of what they would like the world to be. Um, broadly, though, uh, they would like to see both Russia and China recognized as major powers in the world. Um, uh, from uh, Putin's point of view, they would like to have um, greater ability to define a sphere of influence in which the rest of at least East Asia and Central Asia is uh, deferential to Moscow's interests. Um, and in which Europe has been cowed, the United States is less powerful in Europe, um, and uh, Russia is able to really dictate terms um, about how the economic and uh, geopolitical order of Europe is run. Whereas for, uh, for China, um, they prefer to see an international system, what they would say is more democratic, uh, which is another way of saying in which the United States is less powerful, in which China is more powerful. Um, the, China, though, does not seek... Um, a global dominance the way we would see it uh, as um, some previous major powers, some previous authoritarian uh, regimes have done. Rather, they seek deference around the world where 
Chinese interests, more specifically the interests of the Chinese Communist Party, are respected around the world and dominant in the Indo-Pacific. Um, again, in their vision, the United States would be much less powerful. Uh, the U.S. allies in Asia, specifically Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Thailand, would be far weaker if not have gone away. And China would really be able to dictate uh, the major decisions and rules around the international system, and especially in its sphere of influence in the Indo-Pacific. There was a meeting before the Olympics, and then they, they came out with a statement, the two presidents, and they said that this uh, alliance has, has no limits. But, I mean, we've seen them getting closer together. How strong are the ties, really? Because you can sail in the same direction, but then also, like, if you're taking on water, only to a certain point am I going to bail you out in the end. It's true, and it's it's short of an alliance or an axis. There's really not that much trust between the two. It's a somewhat transactional uh, relationship, and it's a relationship based on antipathy, not on really a shared vision. Um, the uh, the line that I've heard many times when discussing the uh, the China Russia relationship is you know that really they'd like to have better relations with the United States ideally, um, but they can't, so they really need to align with one another uh, from their perspective to protect themselves against what they see as a more aggressive and hostile uh, United States. Um, so the line that I've always heard is, uh, from their perspective, um, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. And <laughs> that's really been driving a lot of that relationship for the last few years. Uh, but I think what's important differently here is that it's not just the national interests. It's the personal relationship between Putin and Xi Jinping. I think they see themselves as world historical figures and see themselves as cooperating to take down what they see as an unfair and hostile international order run by the United States. Abraham Denmark there, senior fellow with the Wilson Center. He's got the book U.S. Strategy in the Asian Century, Empowering Allies and Partners. Abraham, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Today marks the two-year anniversary of the official starts of the COVID pandemic. Deaths here in the U.S. creeping toward a million. More than six million people across the world have died. There are new estimates, though. The death count could be much, much higher, but many people here are getting back to what they think of as the old normal. No more masks, going out again, returning to work. So are we done? With us is Dr. Sarah Coombs, pediatric emergency medicine physician at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., and Dr. Saprina Asumu, who is an infectious disease physician at Boston Medical Center and a professor at Boston University School of Medicine. Doctors, thank you both for being with us. Uh, Dr. Asumu, let me start with you. Um, you heard of the intro. Uh, everybody in this country and indeed in lots of Western Europe seem to be of the mind that this is now in the rear view mirror. But why do I have a suspicion that it might pop up again right in front of us? Yeah, I know. This is definitely a very important uh, question. So, you know, we're in a better place than we were, let's say, in January. Cases are going down. Um you know, we're seeing less transmission in the community, but, you know, we still have about a thousand people dying every day. 
So we may be done with COVID, but COVID is not yet done with us. And so we still need to remain vigilant. And the most important thing we should be doing right now is vaccinating and boosting as many people as possible to get ready for the future. Those rates, though, have fallen off uh, pretty precipitously. It seems like anyone who's going to get their shot has already gotten it. So, I mean, do you actually expect the rates to go much higher than they already are at? No, this is a very good point. You know, I, we only have about 44% of people who are boosted. And if you look at like the 5 to 11-year-olds, we're also not doing really well. So I'm hoping that um, we can let's, let's mobilize more people to try to underscore why it is that we need more people to get vaccinated. But you're, you're correct that like it's, we're not getting any more people, as many people as we should be getting getting vaccinated at this point. Dr. Coombs, as we now enter the third year of the pandemic, uh, and for much of the world, of course, the pandemic is is still very much, uh, it is here, but it's certainly more felt more in many countries that don't have as high a vaccination rate as uh, we do. Uh, but as we enter this third year of the pandemic, uh, it almost seems like a day does not go by when there isn't some article about some surprising discovery about this virus, what it does to the human body, uh, new ways of treating it. What have we learned and what still do we not know as we go into a third year? So I think there's still a lot we don't know. And I think that's really the point to drive hope. You know, we, we have learned along with this virus. This virus has evolved. We have seen mutation after mutation, and we have had to evolve along with it and always play a bit of catch up. So something that's very much talked about nowadays is not just the acute COVID infection and that initial you know, cough and what we think of as the typical respiratory infection, but this phenomenon known as long COVID. Um, And certainly here in Washington, D.C. at Children's National Hospital, we have a clinic actually dedicated to that. And especially as you can imagine with the pediatric population that I deal with in the emergency room, you're seeing children who have COVID at a very young age. And the big question, the big unknown is if you catch COVID at the age of five, What's that going to look like for you at 10 years old, 20 years old, 30 years years old? Because you have a long time ahead of you. So, you know, I would want to re-echo what um, Dr. Asuma was saying in terms of, you know, this COVID is not yet behind us. You know, as much as we would like to be done and just throw away the masks, it's still out there. And there's still a big number of unknowns. There's the long COVID. There's the other, you know, even short-term effects. And we really are still in a learning pattern with it. Your clinic is not the only, you know, long COVID clinic or the one that's at your site. And we've bounced around and talked to them. Have has there been any determination yet as to the percentage of people where it actually is lifting? I mean, long COVID for a year or 18 months and then it gets a little better. Or is it just for the vast majority of the people who really do have long COVID? It's it's not going away yet. It seems like it's the latter, unfortunately, that it's not going away yet. You know, we've definitely seen some children with maybe shorter courses, but we've seen some who keep coming back and they just can't kick it and they'll have a day of school getting in the way of daily activity. Um, So certainly it can it can last. It can last a very long time into the future. And I think that's something to be aware of. But what about uh, people? Because so many people in this world, as you know, never knew they had COVID. One of the reasons, right, why it was so uh, infectious to begin with was people who never knew they had the disease, they were spreading it. Uh, Can those people end up 
creating a, a epidemic in years to come of, you know, mysterious diseases that when one traces it back, you'll find out in 10, 15, maybe 20 years from now, they at one point had COVID. Yeah, no, that's a, definitely a very important concern. You know, remember in the beginning, just we didn't have tests available and we weren't able to test everybody who needed to be tested. So you're correct that if someone had, you know, either symptoms and they weren't tested, that seemed to be suggest- suggestive of, of, of COVID, um, you know, if they were infected, they're definitely at risk. Uh, for developing long COVID. And we know that approximately 10 to 30% of people who've had COVID may go on to develop long COVID. So this is definitely a concern. And Dr. Coombs, what do we do with that kind of a situation in the current kind of medical system that we have? I remember some early worries, even when we started learning about long COVID was was people going, okay, are we going to have a whole class of people that are kind of right on the line of being disabled because we can't really pinpoint what's wrong with you, but you don't have enough energy to go to work. So how do we make that how do we make that work? It's going to potentially be tough, right? So I think I think the thing is moderation, as in all things, that we want to acknowledge it. We want to know that it's out there. We want people to be aware of what to look for. Um, and again, it's a good reason to push for things like the vaccination, even in these the 5 to 11-year-old age group that notoriously hasn't been as high with their vaccine uptake. At the same time, we want to tell people, you also have to go on living your lives. So, you know, yes, if you have a day or two of feeling a bit under the weather or in a brain fog, don't necessarily panic and assume that now you have long COVID and you're doomed. Just be aware of it. Keep yourself as healthy as possible. Do indeed get vaccinated, get boosted, do all the safe measures you can to avoid getting infection now and keep moving forward. But if you have symptoms that you think might be long COVID, do bring it up with your healthcare provider because we're continuing to learn and there may be therapies in the future. Let me ask a question actually of both of you. And, it, and this doesn't really uh, ask uh, either of you really to tap into your medical knowledge, but it really asks to just sort of tap into your knowledge of, of knowing people. And, and let me begin with Dr. Sumu. Um, as we go into this third year of the pandemic, what do you think the impact has been, again, not medically, but just on people? And, and is it the kind of impact that is going to take people a really long time to get over? Yeah, no, we've all been traumatized by this, even, you know, if you, from like losing family members and loved ones to, you know, really having our lives be turned upside down. So we, we are all going to be um, struggling to sort of get over and, and, and find the sort of uh, the new normal, the next normal to the, to adjust to new things. But, you know, there are certain things that certainly um, we can learn from and try to improve sort of uh, the next normal. Dr. Coombs? Yes, I'd agree with that. I think just from a very human perspective, um, this has been a real wake-up call in terms of what, quote-unquote, just a virus can do. Um, And it's been tough. I think it's seen family relations, people not being able to be in close contact with loved ones, people, as Dr. Asumu mentioned, even losing loved ones to COVID. So I do think there's going to be essentially a recovery period as we adjust to, you know, the new normal or what happens if we ever get to a post-COVID point. And we're going to have to look back and reflect and we're going to have to move forward slowly so it's not too much of a jolt to the system. Dr. Sumu, new normal, next normal, what does that look like to you? 
Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I, I used to call it the new normal. You probably noticed I switched yeah, next, my yeah. to the, <laughs> the next normal because um, <laughs> we just really don't know where we're heading. So I think number one is, you know, we're in a lull. And as I said before, we should use this time to prepare and um, get as many people vaccinated as possible because, you know, we know that there are still a lot of people in this country who are not vaccinated. There are still a lot of people overseas who are not vaccinated. So, you know, there's probably going to be another variant that's going to come. And so the more we can do now to prepare, get vaccinated, get boosted, and also be ready. You know, you know, a lot of places are getting rid of, of masks, um, mandates indoors and in other places. But, you know, we, we need to prepare and be ready to, to maybe, you know, mask up again if cases go back up and think of it as sort of a temporary thing that we do to decrease cases. Um, I know, you know, also in terms of what governments can do, you know, just increasing our supply of testing and also making um, everyone aware of, you know, there's been so much progress, you know, when we think about where we were two years ago when we had nothing to now where we actually have medication that we can give to people who who are at high risk so that they don't get hospitalized or die from COVID. So there's definitely a lot that we have and a lot of tools, but we need to really uh, prepare and really um, be ready to deploy all those different measures um, in the near future. Two years of the pandemic, a lot of people in in your profession, doctors, uh, medical workers, nurses, physicians, uh, just decided enough was enough, and they left the profession. Dr. Coombs, did you ever come to a period in the past two years where you thought, Maybe just to yourself and be honest. Uh, you know, I, I just can't do this anymore. So I have to say, I never actually questioned leaving the profession. I will say to share a little personal information. I had my first child in March of 2020. Hmm. So, you know, he is very much a, my husband and I refer to him as a marker of the pandemic time. <laughs> he just turned two. He had his two-year-old birthday this past weekend. And so I will say I didn't question leaving because I felt having a child at home, I really felt so strongly about continuing to work in the pediatric emergency realm to continue to protect others' children's. But I certainly, I think it heightened my fear, you know, juggling being um, a first-time mother and the the ICD-10 system in America, the medical coding system, blessed me with the designation of an elderly first-time mother, no less. Juggling that with seeing, you know, sick children at work, um, I think the emotional toll was large. And I think that's what we've seen across the board. There's been a huge emotional toll on healthcare workers. And that has, as you've said, unfortunately, led some to just leave the profession and not be able to do it anymore. We love some sort of system or book telling us things about ourselves, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Sarah Coombs, a pediatric emergency medicine physician, Children's National in D.C., Dr. Sabrina Asumu, Infectious Diseases at Boston Medical Center and uh, Boston University School of Medicine. Doctors, thanks to you both. That's In Depth for the week. Back Monday.